Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here at Rise with us today. Uh, give yourselves a hand clap right now. I promise you, just go ahead and give yourselves a hand clap because you are sitting in uh, a very a different service because typically, uh, for those of us in the church world, we kind of call this Black Sunday because everybody forgets that we have church after Easter. And so they're like, well, they had it Easter. They're probably not going to have it for like another year, right? So we'll just not come. So you guys are here. That's half the battle. So happy that you're here. On behalf of uh, my wife and I and our staff, we're so happy that you're here. If you're a guest with us for the very first time, hey, we invite you to come back at least three times to figure out, see if this is hopefully your place and your home. We call it spiritual family. And uh, we tell everybody to kind of come three times to get that feel. You got to try to, you got to feel it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like sometimes you go and you're like, I don't know if I feel it. I don't know. You got to come back. So you come check it out at least three times and hopefully you will like it today. Today is going to be unique. And because <clears throat> we're not going to have, uh, we're going to have a little bit of a unique message. Normally I preach through the Bible. And, you know, we'll grab a message or a text or a topic and we teach in sermon series here. Uh, but today we're going to ask all of your questions and I'm going to try to do the best I can to answer them. And it's going to be unique and fun. And we're going to have a lot of fun in church today. So it's going to be really, really good. So buckle up. It's going to be awesome. So a couple of ground rules before we get started, uh, because I like to just make sure that you know, we're all on the same page, uh, especially with new people that have come from Easter and all that kind of stuff. And so I just want to kind of give you a couple of ground rules. Number one, where the Bible is clear, I will be clear. And so I'm a Bible teacher. I'm not a self-help guru. I wish I was because it would be easier, um, but it's not. And so, and I'm not that. So I teach from the word of God. So where it's clear, I'm going to be clear about it. Where it's not clear, I will give you my opinion. I will say this. There is a reason why uh, a lot of really smart old people that have studied the Bible for many, many years disagree. There's a reason why there's a debate. It's because, hey, it's debatable. There's a way to look at the Bible in certain ways, in certain contexts. You can get it from different areas. Here's what I know. The moment you read something, you are, guess what? You are interpreting it. And when you interpret something, that leaves room for it to be, you guessed it, misinterpreted. And so there are options. There's a lot of ways you can see Scripture. There's a lot of ways you can kind of uh, look at different things. We are, remember this, we are 21st century, non-Hebrew speaking, Western thinking, live in America, Christians. Guess what? The Bible was not written to you. And so it wasn't written to us. Now, it doesn't mean it's not valuable. This thing is powerful. It's incredible. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It can change the lives of people, but the context matters. And so we got to be able to walk through context. It could be misinterpreted. But one thing we're going to have here, here's the posture of our church, this, this series, okay, for the next four weeks. So if you're one of those guys who's just like mean and angry all the time, you might not like this series because you and I are going to have fun, which means you're going to smile. Number one is this. Uh, we're, uh, and the second thing is this. We're going to do what uh, I think an early 17th century German theologian said. He said this statement. He said this, and this is how our series, this is the spirit of our series, okay? This is our posture. He says, in the essentials, we're going to have unity. Everybody say unity. Amen. All right. In the non-essentials, we're going to have liberty. Everybody say liberty. Amen. And then in all things, we're going to have charity. Everybody say charity. All right, so what that means is, is that on certain things, we got to divide. It just is what it is. We're not on the same team. I call them state borders or national borders. Here's what I know. If you live in Canada, you ain't American. You don't subscribe to our Bill of Rights. You don't, you're, you don't follow our Constitution. And so since that's the case, you're Canadian and we're American. We're doing two different things. All right, but here's what I found. Inside of America, there's a lot of states. And so there's some people doing stuff in California that we don't do here in Texas. Can I get an Amen. And so vice versa, like we just love, we love God. This is God's country. Texas is God's country. I don't know what they're doing in California, but, that, but guess what? 
they're still American. We're all still American. And so we're going to divide on some things, but so we can walk together as Americans, but yet do different things, you know, like practice wise. Okay. And so that's kind of how we are with, with Christianity. There's a lot of denominations. There's a lot of people who come from different backgrounds and different histories and different stuff. Listen, I've been studying the Bible since I was 18. I'm 35, getting close to, uh, you know, two decades and learning the Bible. Here's what I found. The stuff I believed and knew about the Bible when I was 18, I'm having to learn or unlearn now. Now, now that means, that doesn't mean that it was wrong. It just means that I didn't see it correctly or I didn't see it in its totality. Hey, you know what? For the rest of my life, the Bible is going to be continually revealed to us. And that can be okay. And some of us in here are going to be like, well, I don't know. I mean, just, let me just tell you, here's what we have in unity, okay? Here's the essentials, that Jesus lived a sinless life. He died, buried, and rose again. And for all of our sins, his blood was shed for our, the, the remission of all of our sins inside the world. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. One day he's coming back. He's going to bring all the church with him. That's where we have unity in, okay? If you don't believe in that, now, listen, if you don't believe in that yet, there's a difference between yet, I don't believe in it yet. I'm still finding, figuring this thing out. There's a difference between that and I refuse to believe in it. If you refuse to believe in that, then, hey, we're just on different teams. doesn't mean I can't love you, though. I'm going to love you, but we're doing two different things. And there are some religions and some places that teach that he wasn't the son of God, that he didn't die. We're doing two different things. But in all, a lot of other things, there's a lot of other things we can debate about. So with that posture, we're going to have humility. Everybody say humility. We're going to love each other. We're going to be okay. And here's what I'm going to say. This is what I said this in the first service. You can disagree with me and still go here, okay? Like on opinions, okay? So if I say something, I answer, I'm going to answer from the Bible. I'm going to give you my opinion. I'm going to give you some wisdom. But you can have a different take on it. That's okay. You need to know this, that the Hebrew, maybe the most Hebrew and Jewish thing in the world is actually asking questions and having debate. The Bible actually talks about how Jesus showed his like wisdom, how they were, how he was astonishing people was by him asking questions. That's how they figured out how smart you were, was whether or not you could have a conversation. Isn't it seem a little opposite now in our culture? It's like, if you have disagree with me, then I'm going to make sure I hate you. That is nothing to do with Christianity. And so we want to be postured like Jesus, be postured like his people and the Israelites. So with that being said, that's our ground rules. Our goal of the series is to not deepen our divisions. It's to deepen our understanding. Okay? Can we, can we all just shake your head? Just say, okay, pastor. Okay, I see you. Okay, good. Okay, awesome. So I, I saw you. God saw you. And don't write me a crazy email. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we love you, God. Being here today, Lord, as we open up your scripture, and Lord, we just find your answers to maybe life's toughest questions. God, we just thank you that we have wisdom in you and know that you are here with us in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen, amen. Hey, by the way, before I get into the first question, this is a very biblical way of teaching. If you ever look at Jesus in the life of Jesus, the disciples would come up, ask him a question, and then he would teach on that question. So if you say, like, this ain't biblical, you're wrong. Okay, number one, uh, is it okay to pray for my sports team to win? Clearly, whoever asked for this question did not pray for the Spurs last night. Thanks. I prayed. All right. How many of y'all think it's okay to pray for a sports team? Raise your hand. Let's have fun in here. Come on. It's okay. All right. Lower your hands. All right. How many of y'all think it's not okay to pray for your sports team? Come on. Anybody? Anybody? Nobody? Nobody willing? Nobody? I don't think it's okay. All right. How about that? I'm just kidding. Um, Is it okay to pray for your sports team? Well, you know, it it depends. Um, You know, I think it's funny. 
sports has such an interesting effect on our society. And, you know, anytime you, you pray for something that, that is a game, it's a game. It is a game. Uh, it's a business. It's a game, especially as you get uh, in the professional realm. But, um, you know, sports is interesting. It has an interesting effect on people. There's a competitive nature in all of us. And so um, depending on who you are, some of you have a small competitive nature. Some of you, you know who you are. You have a high competitive nature, and you need, like, counseling for that. And, <laughs> and, uh, but I will say this. Um, the Bible doesn't, you know, there's not a specific verse on like, thou shalt not pray for your sports team, the, you know, Spurs. Um, but I, I will say this, you know, God, I think, cares about the little things. Luke chapter 12 and, uh, speaks about it. I think Jesus even shows us that he, God cares about the moanings and groanings of our heart, the highs and lows of, of what we feel and what we want in life. Um, the, the Lord cares about you and I deeply. And I think it's the big things and the small things. And I think he, he, he uh, if, if you look at the totality of Scripture, um, there's, a, there's a great verse that says we, we have a high priest that can be touched by the feeling of our infirmity, that when you cry, he feels it. That, there's a, that when you have a pain, he feels it. When you have a joy, he feels it. That there's celebrations that happen in heaven, and that means that he see, they can see things, they can understand things. So I think God does care about the big things in our life and the small things. I think you got to be careful. Some people don't go to God with the small things because they feel like maybe he doesn't care about that or he doesn't want to know about your little things in your life and it keeps you from having a relationship with God. I want you to know God cares. He cares about the little things. Um, you know, I think in terms of this particular question, here's my opinion. Um, I think God stays neutral. There's Christians on both sides. I believe there's one or two maybe Christians on the nuggets. And, uh, and, but I, I know most of our team is saved. And, uh, and so, you know, it's like, but, but like, I think there's Christians on both sides. And so to ask God to take a side based on his Christianity is kind of counterintuitive, you know. Um, I do think, though, I, I will say this, just a couple of things, just a couple of notes. If you are playing on a team, you know, sometimes we play like, can I, my team, my team, my sports team, I want to win. And so, you know, you have the national championship coming up or you have a state championship coming up and you're going into competition and you're praying, God, help me win. I think there's a better prayer to ask than God help you win. Probably God help me reflect you well in the process of this game would be a better prayer um, because I think there's more at stake than you winning or losing the game. Um, and many times when we're rooting for our teams, have you ever met that guy who's over the top fan, the fan, the fanatic? You know, fan is short for fanatic. And so they really put to truth that word, fanatic, like you crazy. <laughs> and, and I think sometimes you are not reflecting the heart of God accurately in your fandom. And so if you're a dad who's on the side of a three-year-old soccer match tossing chairs at the referee, <laughs> you have a problem. I have a problem. <laughs> and so, like, we got to be careful that the things that we do in our life, right, reflect our Heavenly Father. They reflect, because if you call yourself a Christian, it means you are a reflection of Christ. And, and you know what? There's some people I don't want reflecting Christ, you know? I'm like, don't say you're a Christian. You ain't Christian. That ain't Christian. And, and like, you know, sometimes we can let it overtake us, and then you can trade your winningness or your competitive nature, and you trade it, your influence in for that. You trade your witness in for that. You could have reached someone for Jesus and you didn't because you were too busy screaming at them in the process of, come on, you played a basketball game with them and then a fight broke out. You had a soft, you want to know why we don't have a softball team here at this church? It's because most pastors get in fights at the softball game. <laughs> I don't trust me, y'all. It's not that I don't trust you. 
And why? So we got to reflect like the God that we serve. And if you're going to pray, you got to remember prayer at its core is conversation with God. It's a relational connection. So how you posture God in your life is who he becomes. God is only as big as you have him in your life. So if God's only a lifeguard to you, which means he only, you only talk to him when you're in dear, like serious trouble, when you're deep in the water over your head, that's the only time God hears from you. He, you've made him a lifeguard and not a God. Maybe the only time you meet him and talk with him is when you actually have like, you're like, God, today is the day. I need this and I need this and I need this and I need this. And he's not a savior. He's a Santa to you. Then he's always going to be Santa to you. God will be as big as you allow him to be in your life. And my, my hope for us is instead of praying for God to fix the game, pray that God would help you be a man or a woman of character so that you can reflect him well. I think there's other prayers that we can pray other than... My, my final opinion is maybe there's other prayers we can pray than just hoping that you know some millionaires win the game we're watching. Does that make sense? All right, number two. Number two is this. Uh, why is there no altar at Rise Church? Had this question come up. Um, you know, what's interesting about this question, typically uh, when, when I get this question, it's, it's asked in two... Um, in kind of two specific ways, but uh, I want to give a, a, just a brief history on an altar in general, because a lot of times when we say altar or we ask for altar, you don't even know what you're asking for. Um, I'm going to give you a great scripture. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to read it together. And it says this, this is the writer of Hebrews is speaking about um, the, 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 the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, pre-Jesus and post-Jesus, for those of you who, who are maybe new to Christ. And he says this, under the old covenant, ever say old, yeah, and in the old covenant, the priest stands, or the prophet, or the, you know, the man of God, the priest stands, and ministers before the altar, there's our word, day after day, offering the same sacrifice again and again, which can never take away sin. So what he's saying is he's saying, look, the altar originally was created inside the old covenant when the Israelites were leaving uh, Egypt. He had to establish this new covenant, this kind of new way of doing things with uh, these people. There was like a, there was a, there was a different kind of way. And so when, when you had the temple inside the temple, there was a thing called an altar. An altar was like a a man-made thing made up out of earth or stone or rock. And what they would do is they literally would serve as kind of like a table where the priest or the prophet would come and the people would come into the temple and they would actually, they would, most of them would stay out of the temple. And so the priest would bring it in and they would slaughter the animal, the animal that the family would bring in for the sins of the family. And that's kind of the way that they would get forgiveness of their sins under the old covenant law. So the priest would stand. There was now a separation between God and man. And so you had to have this type of way to cleanse your sins or your family's sins out of uh, your life. In fact, the Hebrew word for altar is mizbach, and it actually means place of slaughter. So to have an altar in a place like this, you know, let's just say we wanted to do that. Let's say we're all in the old covenant. You know, there's a lot of logistical issues there. You know, we'd be here for a long time because I don't know about you, but man, there's a lot of sin in our lives. And so there's, we'd, every time we'd have to come in and it'd be weird, it would smell weird, it'd have a weird, you know, kind of a weird spirit in here, I'm sure. There'd be a lot of death happening, there'd be blood everywhere, I couldn't wear my nice shoes, I'd be mad, it'd be like, man, what's going on? It'd be different. And so inside of the old covenant or the old, um, kind of the old way of doing things, the, the altar served as a unique place where there was sacrifice happening. Now, fast forward, Hebrews goes on to say in verse 12, he says this, but when the priest had offered for all of time one sacrifice for sins, Jesus, come on, 
He sat down at the right hand of God. So now, in the, under the new covenant, now Jesus comes along and says, listen, Aaron needs to be able to wear nice shoes because he's got issues. And so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to sacrifice my life for the sins of all mankind because Aaron can't do it and y'all can't do it and we can't be good enough. And so Jesus comes in and now he's good enough and he's perfect and he's blameless. And he comes in as the sinless lamb of God. He's slaughtered on our behalf so that when his sins and his blood or when his blood is shed for our sins, now we can be free in the new covenant of God. And so the altar, when you're asking for why is there no altar in the, in the church, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense in the new covenant. Now, I will say this. I will say this. Oftentimes when people are asking me the questions about altars, it comes up in really two forms. The first one is this. When people ask for an altar, they're asking for based on their religion or denomination or history or family history. They're looking for a place inside the church, synagogue, whatever, to come in and to pray to God. That's what they're looking for. The second thing they're asking for is, is, is really a reference to what we call an altar call. So the first thing is what they're asking for is, I want a place where I can come pray, where I can talk to the priest, and I can get a connection with God. Well, you have good news. You don't need me anymore. So you no longer need a priest or, or, a, or some person to stand or a prophet to stand in on your behalf so that you can have communication or have a relationship with God. Jesus comes down. His blood gets shed. The, the veil is, is ripped into. So now there's no longer a separation between you and God. Now you can connect with him on your own. I don't have a red phone to God. He doesn't have a special email address he only gives to pastors. There's no number. I don't have, he's not a special Facebook friend where I can go, oh, because I've had people come up and ask me, hey, will you pray and talk to God for my issue? I'm like, I'll pray for you, but you can talk to God for your issue because Jesus came in and made that possible. And so now what, what, what the altar served for in the old covenant no longer really serves that. And so is that a bad thing to have an altar inside the church? Not necessarily. My opinion is, is man, honestly, there's a lot of good things that are in religious practices that could be positive and could benefit. Honestly, when we have a building, we might have a special place where you can come and pray throughout the week and you can have a moment with God. You feel like it's maybe a holy area, but you need to know that. You need to know this. That place is not more holier than your bedroom closet or your room with your moment with God. And so I don't mind that from a religious standpoint because some of us might feel comfortable for that where you can come in and pray, but you don't need a priest to get to God anymore. You had a high priest who now made sure everything was taken care of and now you have a direct line, a direct connection to him. Come on, somebody say amen. So that, that's important. But again, I don't think it's a bad thing to have it in the church. I'm, again, that's my opinion. I, but there, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that says thou shalt have an altar inside your church or it's not a church. That doesn't, that's not what that means. Uh, number two is this, is they asked about, normally when I get this question, I get to ask for an altar call. And so for those of you who never grew up in church, or maybe you didn't see this part, um, for, me, for, for the last maybe, you know, uh, maybe a hundred years, or maybe even a couple hundred years, it really started, you really started to hear this word, the, the altar call, quote unquote, starting around the 19th century, leading into the 20th century, and then obviously into the 21st century, with guys like Charles Finney and Dwight Moody and even the Reverend Billy Graham, um, these great evangelists would hold great, big, gigantic, you know, evangelistic tent revivals and moments and these big crusades. And they really popularized this idea of responding to the gospel by standing up and coming to what they called the altar. So they would say, if you want to receive Jesus, stand up and come to the altar and we will pray. And it was a response to God doing something inside of their hearts. And I don't think that's bad. That's not evil. It just is. It was a method. Everybody say method. 
It was a method of response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've had people come in and say, hey, you need to have an altar call. You need to have some time where somebody walks in. Hey, you need to make sure they walk up. And if you don't pray for them, it's not the real deal. And I'm saying, well, you didn't read your Bible. Because when Jesus was dying on the cross, next to him was a sinner who looked over at Jesus and said these two words, please remember me. Three words, something like that. Said words, said remember me. I went to college. And so... He looked at Jesus and said, remember me. And you know what Jesus said? He did, you know what he didn't say? He didn't say, hey, wait until we find an altar. Then you can walk to the altar and then I'm going to pray for you. He said these words. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So I'm not saying the altar's bad, but don't come up to me and tell me the altar is, must be here for people to get saved. So we have a moment. We have a method here. And you'll find this out at the end of our service. For those of you who have never given your life to Jesus, spoiler alert, you're going to know in just a moment. We're going to give you an opportunity. And the way we do it is we have you close your eyes and lift your hands. We still are looking for a response because God's looking for a response. He doesn't force himself on you. He's a gentleman. He knows. He wants real love. When you want real love, you don't force people to do anything. That's why you're not a machine. If he wanted you to love you, he wanted to make sure he, you loved him, that wouldn't be real love. So he wants to know, will you choose me? Will you respond to me? And so our method of response is just, will you lift your hand? so that I can recognize that you did that. But some people are going to say it in their hearts. Some people are going to say it with their lips. Some people are going to be led to Jesus at Starbucks. Some people are going to be led to Jesus in HEB. Lord knows a lot of people need to bat there. But the altar isn't needed for that, although it was a great benefit. And you know what? Here's the funny thing. I value the altar. I'll give you one better. I was saved that way. I personally, when I was 12 years old, I responded to a message and I walked up to the front and a pastor prayed for me and I received the Holy Spirit. I, I, I received salvation that way. I value. So you're not talking to a guy who's like, you don't need that. I don't know the value. No, no, no. I value it. I'm just saying that it, there's different methods as time goes on. That's over 20 years ago. And some churches are holding on to that and you're keeping people from having a moment with God because, man, nowadays that, that could be kind of weird. And I meet the Bible thumpers and like, it should be weird. You need to be stand up for Jesus because Jesus stood up for you. I get all that. But there are some people who aren't wired that way. And I want to make sure everybody, everybody, ever say everybody, Amen. not some people who have the courage to do that. I want everybody to have the moment with God so that they know him. That's why we do service on the weekends. So that's my response to that. But again, I love it. I don't not love it. I value it. I think it's incredible. We just need to know. Let's not make it into something that it isn't. Let's not make the altar an idol. Let's keep God our God. Okay? All right. Number three is this. That was fun. My grandpa thinks tattoos are a sin. Should a Christian have a tattoo? Really? <laughs> Next question. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, man. Um, well, there's a multiple ways I can answer this, I guess. I could split our church wide open right now. Um, you know, there's, a lot of, there's really a lot of questions in this question. Uh, let, me, let me start off by answering, should a, should a Christian have a tattoo? Well, uh, yes and no. Um, you know, I think, let's go to the Bible and see what the, what the Bible has to say. So what does the Bible have to say about tattoos? I'll say not a, not a whole lot. 
Um, but, you know, most people who quote the Bible when it comes to tattoos use this scripture, and I'll, I'll read it to you. It's in Leviticus, and it's uh, verse 28. It says, you shall not make any cuts your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves, and I am the Lord. And most people would go, well, that pastor, that settles it. And I'm like, okay, that's, that settles it. So when do you want to not cut your hair and not trim your beard and don't get any piercings? And uh, let's talk about your diet. Let's talk about your sacrifices. Let's talk about your... Because it's not that this is not even good wisdom. It's just that you have now taken something out of what I talked about earlier, context. So if you're new to our church, what typically what I'll do before I even read a scripture, I'll spend about five minutes just giving you the setting. Who wrote it? Why it was written? Where it was written from? What's the point of the part? Who, what, like, I give you all of it because I want you to understand context. When you read something out of context, you can really get yourself into some hot water. And not just with tattoos, I'm talking with anything. I mean, there's a lot of parts of Scripture when you misinterpret or you misunderstand what was really being said. Remember, we're, we're, we're reading it a long time after it was written yeah. in a way different culture. And so if you're not careful, you cannot know the context and then start writing a lot of stuff. Like there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that you got to be careful with. Like a lot. Like a lot. <laughs> Trust me. I, I might have... I don't think that I know everything about Scripture, but I might have read it a little more than most because that's kind of what I do. And if you're not careful, you, can, you could do this a lot. Like people do this when they read their Bible. And then you read something and you're like, what in the world? <laughs> and so uh, let me give you some context to Leviticus. So, so Leviticus was written in, in, in uh, telling telling a story of people who were leaving, listen to this, a nation who was leaving slavery and they had no laws. So I want you to think about that for a minute. Think about America, as crazy as it is right now. Think about if we didn't have law, we didn't have the Constitution, we didn't have the Bill of Rights, we had no center point to know where what should do or not should do, okay? Does that make sense? Think about that in the context of the Old Testament. And when God delivered the law with the Ten Commandments in it, which was 600 and some laws, that ten was just part of it, when he was, he was giving laws to a nation who had none, they were in many ways a, a, a lawless people, the Bible says, and so God's delivering them out of slavery. And the purpose for some of these items, some of these laws, some of these rules were so that when you leave slavery out of Egypt, you don't walk into a new slave master. He was saying, be careful. You don't leave one slave master for another. That when you leave Egypt, now you got to walk into your promised land, but you got to make sure Egypt gets out of you. And what he was addressing specifically was culturally in that time, people and the neighboring nations, they were cutting themselves, tattooing themselves, marking themselves, piercing themselves in worship to their pagan gods. So for God, this was an idol issue. Not a tattoo issue. And the truth of the matter is, some people still do that. 
So it's just a method of idolatry. So I'm not even saying that we shouldn't, we don't throw this whole scripture out. I know some people who go, well, that's just out of context. We don't need to worry about that. No, we do. Because that's important that we don't find ourselves doing things in worship to false gods. Okay? So let's get context. It's given a law to lawless people so that they wouldn't fall into idolatry. What does that mean for us? I will say this. The Bible, you can't, it's hard pressed to find more scriptures about tattoos being sinful that I have read. So I don't see it, okay? That's my opinion on it, okay? I don't see it in scripture black and white. You could manipulate some scriptures and put some pieces together and make you feel better about what grandma told you. Or what your old church pastor told you. You could do that. And that's fine. We could still walk together, okay? That's all good. If you feel like that, that's fine. I don't think that that's what scripture's saying. However, if you do think it's okay, there's some guidelines I would give you from scripture that would be maybe helpful in wisdom and getting some tattoos. The first would be um, kind of what I told you about is nothing pagan, evil, or inappropriate. I would be careful putting something permanent on my body that could be misunderstood by someone else. That's the second thing is I would be, uh, you need to understand that man, Bible says man looks on the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. So don't walk into your don't walk, don't be mad at your employer if they don't understand why you have a tattoo of a skull on your neck and they feel like that's inappropriate. And you're like, well, they don't know my heart. Well, of course they don't know your heart. They're not God. They don't walk around with like an x-ray machine. Let me see your heart. Mm-hmm. I know your heart. And so be careful because if you get a tattoo, I'm just telling you, you get a tattoo in a world we live in, there's some people who look down on that, who think that that's inappropriate, who think that there's a level of that that's just wrong. You ne- it doesn't matter if they're wrong. You have to make that decision for yourself. And so I'm not saying it's sinful or evil or they're right or you're wrong. I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying is it is. It is. It is. And don't say it isn't because I've talked to many, many people in my lifetime who've like, man, I lost a job because of this, or I did this and everything like that. They misunderstood me because of that. It sometimes can be misconstrued as rebellion. That's how people think, all right? I get it, okay? So just be careful because you could lose influence. You could lose stuff for that. And if you're okay with that, then you're okay with that. But just know that that's part of the price. Uh, something you're gonna want forever. I do think that, like, be careful. Make sure it's not a temporary thing in your mind. Um, one thing I used to give, uh, I used to be a youth pastor and college pastor for like 10 years, and people would come up to me all the time and like, hey, I want to get this. And my advice to them every time was this. This is just a helpful wisdom, okay? Pick out what you want, then wait a year and see if you still want it. It's just, just helpful advice because you might, I would probably guess to say you don't. That's just my thought. I'm going to give you a little thing. Uh, when, I was in, uh, when I was in college, I loved this band. His name, uh, band was MXPX, and it's like a Christian punk rock band. You're like, is that even possible? Yeah. So anyway, so, but they had like this symbol, and it was like a little punk rock guy with spiky hair, and I, I was going to put him on my shoulder. I'm, I never did it because like I didn't have any money to do it, but I thank God that I didn't because I have like a Christian punk rock guy. <laughs> now, I mean, it just is what it is. So I would just say, be, make sure you know it's going to be for uh, a long time which is a long time. Uh, the, another one I would say is um, make sure you get something that is in a place and uh, uh, has the ability to, to uh, adjust over time because skin does weird things as you get older. 
It, you know, it doesn't go up. It goes down, down, things. Anyway, and then, um, and then I would say the last one, just helpful advice, probably not a person's name, you know, um, be, just because, you know, you got, you're dating Beth. I love Beth. And then Beth runs off with, you know, Stanley. You know, I don't know. It's the first name that jumped in my head. Is anybody named Stanley in here? No? Okay, good. All right. Uh, so the answer to the question, you know, it, should Christians have a tattoo? Um, some people can and some people shouldn't. That's my opinion. Hey, and guess what? If you disagree, it's a state border. It's all good, okay? It's all good. It's all good. You can still come here and... and, and uh, do I have a tattoo? Y'all want to know if I have a tattoo? I'm not going to tell you. All right, next one. Uh, I'm dating someone of a different faith background and my parents don't approve any advice. Yes. Uh, yes, I have advice. Um, I will say this, um, somebody asked me the other day, they go, hey, pastor, I'm dating, and, you know, can, tell me, what, what does the Bible have to say about dating? And I told them, nothing. And they're like, what? And I said, nothing. Uh, here's why. In the arc of human history, dating is actually a fairly new thing. Um, you just didn't do that. You don't see it in the Bible because it's not in the Bible. A lot of, there was no dating. You didn't date. You didn't, it was arranged, a lot of arranged marriages, um, a lot of, you know, divine connections. Um, and primarily is because, you know, honestly, the older I get, the, when I look at my children and I'm like the boy, my boys, I'm like, y'all can't even decide whether or not to eat a piece of trash off the ground. I don't want you choosing your mate. Like arranged marriages make a whole lot of sense the older I get. Um, yeah, but it was cultural. But again, dating is, is a new thing. And honestly, there's a lot of ugliness that happens in dating. And it just takes sexual immorality out of it. That, that just Don't even talk about sexual stuff. I'm just talking about like there's a lot of pain, emotional hurt, a lot of trauma that's happened. I mean, we counsel people that have been damaged for long periods of time. Because they dated in unhealthy ways, they dated unhealthy people, they, they just, they, they, you know, the whole idea, well, I got to take the car out for a ride before I buy it. No, that's stupid. That's, that, that's culture. That's not Bible, you know? And so um, it didn't have a lot to say about dating. I will say this, in terms of relationships, it has a lot to say about relationships. And so I just thought I'd give just kind of my dating advice that I'd normally give out. I call it the four C's. If you're married in here, you need to write this down. Um, because you need to be able to give this to your kids or to people who are dating. If you're dating in here, you really need to pay attention. And if you're single in here, I'm praying for you to find a date. And so, all right. Um, first one is this, uh, character. Character, I think character is a, is a big deal. You need to make sure if you're going to date someone, then you need to make sure you date somebody with character, which is somebody who has integrity, someone who is a man or a woman of their word, someone who follows through with what they say, someone who is trustworthy, someone who has honor, someone who knows how to treat you right. Come on, somebody, like, and stop making excuses for them because you think they're, they're going to get better when they get married. Newsflash, spoiler alert, here's what happens at the end of the credits. They don't. They actually probably get worse. It just magnifies what the issues that you have now. And so find someone with character who treats you well now, who un understands and honors you now, who walks with trustworthiness now. And the longer I do marriage counseling and the longer I talk to people, the more I realize this is such a key, key ingredient. Because um, the second one is this. I'm going to come back to this real quick because the second one is this Christ. You need to have it. Your relationship should be built on a bedrock of Christ. But the reason I, I even say um, character is really, really important. I don't know if it's more important uh, than Christ, because I think Christ is the foundation of all great relationships. But I will say this, some people can find Christ in a moment. It's hard to find people who have character. 
Some people don't have character. I've, I've known people who have Christ and literally they say they're a Christian, but they don't have character. Come on, it's possible. And so I think just being careful that you don't walk and find each other. Well, he's a Christian, but he treats me like trash. Sorry, that's a no-go. Seriously. And some people use the name of God to misuse and mistreat people. Look at the human history of our world. And so I'm just saying, be careful that you don't find someone that's just a Christian and has no character. You want somebody with character, someone who has Christ. You, uh, the third one is this commonality. The third C is commonality. You know, the longer I do this, the longer I meet people and see great marriages, the more I realize that great marriages are really built on common interests, common vision, common purpose, common goals, common likes, common dislikes. Like there's a difference. Here's why it matters is because if you love the outdoors and you married someone who hates the outdoors, that eventually that's going to be a problem. And you're going to have to work through that. I'm not saying it's unmovable or it's unworkable. I'm just saying that's an issue. That's something you're going to have to work out. That's something you're going to have to be modeled by. And so if you find somebody who has great similar interests, a similar commonality, I mean, that could, that could really help you and move you forward into where you uh, really can be, uh, I think, walk well. The Bible says, who, uh, how can two walk together lest they agree? I think that's part of the agreement factor. It's like we agree that Bible and church is important. We agree that we should go to H-E-B never. We agree that like, you know, that we like the San Antonio Spurs or nothing. We agree that, you see what I'm saying? Like there should be some common interests. You don't need to like everything together, but I think majority you want to find someone who does that. And the last one is this, um, uh, is uh, you have to forgive me, cuteness, cuteness. I couldn't find, like I was thinking, I think attraction, but I can't have CCC and then A, that's weird. And so, uh, uh, but I think cuteness, I do think attractiveness is important. The ability for you to be attracted to your spouse or attracted to your mate or attracted to that person. I'll say this as well as like, just because you get married doesn't mean it give you a license to just now all of a sudden be unattractive and just look however you want and not brush your teeth and not comb your hair and not take care of your body and eat whatever you want. It's not like you won the race and now you enjoy the spoils. I think in some ways when when you get married, you need to date more. That's free. (laughs) Next question. I had to lie to keep out of trouble. Is that a sin? Well, I think I'm going to answer this one quickly. Yes. Uh, the Bible says that when you lie, we speak Satan's native language because he's the father of lies. So my question to you would be is who do you want to reflect? God or... Next question. (laughs) I keep sinning and I feel like a hypocrite. How do I know I'm okay with God? I'm going to close with this question. Um, You know, what's interesting about being a hypocrite. Let me just say this. If you're a Christian by nature, you you and I struggle with hypocrisy. Um, we struggle with that because the truth is we, we are them. We say things and do different. And you just need to settle that in your heart, that that does happen. Now, we don't want that to be the end all. Um, one of the ways you can keep that from happening is to stop acting like you're perfect. Stop acting like when you get saved and all of a sudden now you are perfect and you do everything perfect. You are right and everyone else is wrong. That's not what happened. What happened was is you found the water and your job is to point people towards the water in the desert of our life. Um, I remember um, Paul 
was an apostle and wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And he writes in Philippians, which is a letter to the church at Philippi. And he says these words. He says, we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What he's not saying is that you and I need to work towards our salvation. That work's already been done. And that's a word for some of you in here. Because some of you are still trying to be good enough to get to God. Some of you are still trying to pay a debt that's already been paid. Some of you are still trying to work hours and this company's been shut down. It's been done. So when Paul speaks that we need to work out our salvation, what he's saying is, is that there's a daily renewing, a daily walk with God that comes with our walk with Him. Um, I have a, I wanted to kind of show you this. I'm going to get a little theological in here. Um, but I want to show this to you because I think sometimes it's inaccurate for us to say, when you get saved, everything works out. Everything is good. You're good. Everything's good. Because I've noticed that when I got saved, then I, I, and everything didn't work out. And I continued to sin. And I could, I struck. That's a genuine question. We could struggle with that. Like, God, you, you saved my life and, and I have salvation. And yet I keep sinning. I don't understand. And you walk around with guilt if you're not careful. Guilt that you shouldn't be wearing. And, and I wanted to show you this. This is a, uh, just a simple kind of maybe walkthrough of a progressive nature of God's salvation. And so this is, this is the power of what Jesus did for you and I. Because it, it wasn't just for a moment. So, so when someone gives their life to Jesus, when I gave my life to Christ at 12 years old, here's what happened. All of my, my, all of my sins that happened in my past um, were now covered by the blood of Jesus and the power of salvation now separated me from the penalty of sin. It's what we call in theological terms justification, which means that you and I are now justified in, in God, not because of what we do, because of what God did. When Jesus comes down, his blood is shed, and now we have a separation, the power to have a separation from the penalty of sin. Salvation overtakes it, and now the Bible says what the wages of sin is death. So now that the death that we were supposed to pay, Jesus pays it, and so now we have new life in him, okay? So that's past tense. What most of us struggle with is in our present tense because this is where we all are. We're still alive. And we still got to live in a fallen, sinful world. And so in the present tense, the power of salvation now gives us separation from the power of sin. That's what we call sanctification. And sanctification in theological terms is honestly a daily walk with God. It's a daily waking up. God, I need your cleansing work. God, I need to walk this thing out with you. It's why you need to read your Bible on a regular basis. It's why you need to come to church on a regular basis. It's why you need to pray to God on a regular basis. It's why you need to get inside of scripture and study it out on a regular basis. It's why you need to be in a group, in a small group, and get around like-minded Christian individuals who can pray for you and celebrate you and lift you up. It's why you need to get out of these four walls and serve someone who doesn't know you who doesn't like you, who doesn't look like you, who doesn't believe what you believe. It's why we need to actually believe in our hearts on a regular basis. Come on, I'm preaching better than you're amen. And you need to have a saving, redeeming, continual, sanctifying work inside of your life so that you are free from the power of sin. So, so, so there's a, we live in a world of sin. So the idea of salvation freeing you from ever sinning again, that's not the, what happens. It frees you from the penalty of that sin that you created past, present, and future. It frees you from the power of sin. And one day, everybody say one day. Come on, say one day. 
one day you and I, we're going to pass on from this place. And the Bible says we're going to be lifted up in a glorified new body and go be with our Lord and Savior. Literally glorification. Even Jesus' life, he comes, lives a life, he dies, he rises again, and he's seated on the right hand of the Father. He does, he foreshadows what we were supposed to do, what you and I are supposed to do. So the answer to the question, how do I deal with sinning every day, is you stay close to Jesus, like a son would stay close to his daddy. I have a two-year-old. His name is Winston, and I love him. He's learning to walk. And I've noticed when I walk with my son, Winston, I hold his hand. If he's close enough to me, I hold his hand. And when he falls, guess what happens? Come on. What happens? I catch him, yeah. But when he's not near me, he's still figuring this thing out, still walking like Marshmallow Man, you know. And when he falls, sometimes he, sometimes he catches himself, but sometimes he falls and he hurts himself. Sometimes he falls and he cries and he looks up and you know what he screams? Daddy. And I would say sometimes we get the misunderstanding of salvation to the point where we forget it was all about our walk with him. So you and I at Christianity, the best way I can explain it, is a daily walk with God. Stay close to Him so that when you do, life is full of falls. Come on. Life is full of ups and downs, jumps, spins, all that. I've noticed the greatest people who have the greatest life are not the ones that don't have issues and don't fall. They're the ones who are close enough to God to when they do fall, God catches them. God catches them. Perfect people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. So as you sin, as you fall, hang on to daddy. And the saving continual, come on, the closer you are to him, I've noticed that the closer my son is to me, the less he falls. The less he falls. We get free from the power of sin continually over time to the point where we're free from the presence of sin. One day, one day. 